and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Like pornography, junk food might be tough to define, but you know it when you see it, once wrote the food journalist and author Mark Bittman. The drive to eat better and be healthier, to curb the proportion of processed foods in our diet, is well-trodden ground in our media and culinary culture. What you may not know, however, is that its consumption is increasingly, rapidly, rampantly even, going up in the so-called emerging economies. My guest today is an associate professor and the director of the Institute of Health Policy and Politics in the College of Health at Lehigh University, whose latest book, Junk Food Politics, tackles this precise issue. Welcome to The Bunker, Eduardo J. Gomez. Thank you very much for having me. Eduardo, let's start with basics. What do you define as junk food? Because it's far from a settled issue, isn't it? Sure. Well, I define junk food, I think many define junk food as highly ultra-processed foods that are manufactured, that are easily packaged, uh, fast foods. For example, anywhere you go uh, outside to get a fast food, quick meal, you know, highly ultra-processed foods that are easily accessible, Mm. uh, packaged, last for a long time. Um, Michael Lewis, the author, wrote somewhere that it's foodstuffs absolved of the obligation to provide vitamins or minerals, which I really like. I think it's quite elegant. Um, so, so why is the exponential popularity of junk food in emerging economies a problem in basic terms? Well, it's um, a problem because gradually it seems that it's replacing traditional foods, uh, you know, more nutritious foods. You've had a lot of emerging economies in the past 20 to 30 years, a rising middle income class with a lot more disposable income that are able to purchase these foods. You've had, um, uh, you know, poor communities that now have access to cash through cash transfer programs, for example, mm-hmm. Mexico and Brazil, uh, which do not regulate what they can purchase uh, with these uh, with these extra money from the government. At the same time, you've had a flood of all these ultra-processed foods that have emerged in the past 20 to 30 years. And that, in a way, has incentivized people to change their, from their traditional mm. diets to these ultra-processed foods and made it a lot easier. So that's sort of the challenge that I talk about in my book and that, that I see in general. Um, now, food has always been both a part and a tool of colonization, I think, and in my view, a, a largely overlooked one. Colonizers tend to obliterate local crops and livestock in favor of the foods they prefer. Is that what is going on here in part, a modern version of that, I guess? I think that that is partly true. I mean, I, I think that multinationals are trying to go into these countries I can't say they're intentionally trying to to replace traditional foods, but certainly they are aware that there has been a a dramatic increase in demand for their foods. Mm. And they're doing that because of the fear of declining markets and sales. And a lot of Western industrialized nations where more people are knowledgeable about how unhealthy these food products are. And the opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, of the emerging middle-income class 
the poor with more access to income. And so I think the colonization argument could be, you know, made uh, for multinational corporations. Uh, you know, they don't use that term, but certainly that kind of process is happening where, you know, they are knowledgeable that their uh, foods are replacing and they are trying to reach the most difficult areas in these countries. So they are trying to mm-hmm. get to, you know, the most remote areas. I have to say, I found it very difficult uh, reading, especially the chapter in South Africa, actually, without drawing parallels with the tobacco industry, sort of identifying this whole new market where there is a, a sort of virgin demand for their product and where, you know, the population hasn't quite caught up with the health implications to replace a sort of dwindling domestic market, yes. um, as it were. Yes. Um, you begin the book with an extensive explanation of interest group theory, um, which really fascinated me. What, what is it and how does it plug into this debate? Sure. So what I try to do in the book is try to expose everyone to what political scientists have been writing about for many years and how it applies and can be helpful for our understanding of why junk food companies are so influential. In that process, I introduced interest group theory. And interest group theory takes a look at um, the tactics and the influence of major companies and the associations that represent them. So this kind of research looks at what are the tactics that these companies and their uh, representative associations are doing to influence politics, policy, and society. And also looks at how the political context matters. Do these uh, companies or their representative interest groups have access to the bureaucracy, to the Congress? Every country is different in the degree to which they have access to these institutions. So interest group theory looks at this process. It's a vast literature in political science. I focused on some particular areas of interest group theory, but that's when in general, that's what it looks at. Yeah, so it does have wider application to the way sort of lobbying plugs into our politics. It's not just about emerging um, economies or the food uh, area. Um, Now, Eduardo, I'm interested, junk, junk food has a particular image in countries where it is rare. Um, During the liberalization of former USSR and Eastern Bloc countries, we witnessed that it was seen very much as part of freedom and democracy and westernization more generally. It It was part of its appeal. Are similar dynamics at work in the global South, have you found? I think that there is an image associated with junk food. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's democracy at this time. I would say more of it's a social status. It is an image of wealth and popularity where, um, you know, this is very appealing to a lot of people in the global south. So a lot of uh, upper middle income class, I I talk about in my Mm. book how... Some countries in Asia, they, you know, people often go to fast food restaurants to, uh, you know, for celebrations, and it's uh, seen as a social status, you know, having access to something that's popular in the West, yes, popular in the media, yeah. So, as its popularity wanes in the West, because we are becoming more conscious of the health issues associated with it, will that begin to filter through faster than we saw, for instance, with Eastern Bloc 
countries because social media is quite global, smartphones are much more available. So there must be better awareness of the downsides in Mexico, right, than there was in 90s Bucharest, say. I think you're absolutely right. Social media uh, and activism, uh, and TV and radio, um, you know, in Mexico, activists have been very, very aggressive in raising awareness about the harms of these foods. And social media is facilitating this process. So I, th- I agree with you that the rate of change in public perception and knowledge is increasing dramatically in these emerging economies because of all the available sources of uh, information that they have. You know, the activist community on this specific issue is new and growing, and I think they're using social media and all these tools to raise awareness about the harms of these foods. So I think that the rate of change and sort of knowing more about it is going to grow much faster than I think happened here in the U.S. or in the U.K. Mm-hmm. when people didn't have access to uh, you know, this information easily. Um, your book is essentially, if you take out the theoretical framework that you put at the front and the conclusions at the end, it is essentially split in terms of various countries or regions that you've looked at. So can you tell me what are the different countries you concentrated on um, for the book? Yes, in this book, I look at Mexico, Brazil, India, China, uh, South Africa and Indonesia which are probably the the largest emerging economies uh, in their regions. And I wanted to have diversity and regional representation. And and I was interested, how did it differ in the different regions that you looked at? Were there broad themes that stayed exactly the same for companies sort of trying to penetrate those markets? And were there notable differences too? I think that the broader theme of industries infiltrating markets was similar, but the countries were very different in the politics involved. Uh, for example, in China, I talk about in the research on Coca-Cola and having influence within the government. I think that there was a much stronger relationship between government and Coca-Cola, Ministry of Health, than in other countries. There was more access to central government and mm. health officials in China versus you know, Mexico or Brazil, where there were several different uh, actors within government, several hurdles that needed to be overcome. So I think that the major difference between the regions was the access to institutions. But I think that was very similar was that the companies were successfully infiltrating societies. They were being invited and still are being invited to invest in these countries I think that all of them were similar in terms of uh, the new role this activists are trying, though in some countries, I think like in China, for example, you know, the activist community has been much smaller yeah. to Mexico, where Mexico has been doing very well in, in sort of raising awareness. But I think those were some of the major differences. That's interesting because it, it implies that sort of in the countries that are maybe more authoritarian, mm-hmm. the doors, as it were, into those markets are more restricted. You really have to pull the right levers. Right. But also resistance is much less because the public is much less free to get information and to share that information. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Exactly. Mm. Are there countries who were maybe a little bit more provident, a little bit more proactive, that mirrored Western regulation of this food early and sort of skipped the step? Um, In the emerging economies, I 
didn't find any evidence of countries that were trying to introduce regulations early. I think the one country that I didn't talk about that I've been doing research on is Chile. Chile was probably in the Americas most successful in terms of introducing several regulations of advertising soda taxes at an earlier point uh, compared to any other country in our Western Hemisphere. The government uh, introduced new food labels, the uh, large black octagon labels on foods that mm. show high, sugar, uh, high in sugar, salt, fat. That's been adopted by Mexico, Colombia. Um, and so what happened in that case was that there was uh, activists and also very influential politicians within government that really tried to get this changed early. And that's the only example I can think of in the emerging economies where that happened. And a lot of that had to do with just the emergence of activism and awareness within government, uh, you know, particular leaders in the Senate that were medical doctors that realized that Chile was going through a massive increase in childhood obesity. Chile was one of the first to, need, uh, to introduce free markets during the uh, uh, Augusto Pinochet dictatorship of the 1970s. Uh, so it grew very quickly and advanced its economy quickly. And one of the consequences, of course, was the infiltration of all these ultra-processed foods. And in mm-hmm. that, they saw that um, as a major problem. And so during 2011, 2010, there was a really heightened awareness and attention to this within government and outside of government. The other thing that I noticed was a pattern in the book. For instance, in the chapter where you talk about China in relation to soda uh, manufacture, or in the chapter where you talk about Brazil in relation to large fast food chains, is that these companies are not there just as sellers of things, but they're also there as incredibly important economic partners in terms of producing, manufacturing things for the rest of the world in those countries. So there's this weird vertical integration. They really become partners to government. How fundamental is that to their business model? Oh, it's absolutely fundamental. I mean, the the partnering with government to contribute to the economy, you know, one of the things I talk about is that Presidents are always eager in these countries to partner with these companies because they're providing a lot of employment opportunities, because they're contributing to their economy. And so industries are really counting on this government receptivity and invitations to, to become part of these economies and to contribute to society. I also talk about in the book you know, the corporate social responsibility, how these companies mm. give back to communities by providing employment opportunities Uh, for a lot of the poor and for women. And so all of this is critical for these industries uh, in terms of being partners with government, partners with society, being seen as a good community member, a good part of society. And that's something that they really rely on, but at the same time benefiting tremendously uh, from the, you know, the, the demand for jobs in these countries. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's a good point you raised there that, that, and it's important to emphasize. Now, we often see impoverished regions within rich countries, or even actually neighborhoods and council estates within cities, 
Um, and I'm talking about the UK, the US, France, you know, we see them treated as a bit of a different country, right? The profile of shops and restaurants available is very different. The advertising that goes up is very different. The emphasis is very much on maximum taste and calories for lowest possible price. And all this is with our more sophisticated regulatory regime. So, to what extent do the same things apply here too still? Um, you know, especially the way governments are lobbied by these uh, large firms. I think that that is an in, a very important point. If we look at the micro level and what we call food deserts in the U.S., right, and sort of it's similar, they're, they're throughout the world. Uh, mm -hmm. We are not seeing aggressive regulations. We are not seeing aggressive advertising about the harms of these foods. Um, we've had examples of where there were regulations in New York City, for example, where Mayor Bloomberg introducing the prohibitions of certain buying certain sizes of sodas, uh, introducing uh, calorie counts on menus. Uh, but that's very rare. You know, most of the U.S. states don't introduce these. So if you don't have a local politician that's committed to this, it's not going to happen. And mm -hmm. these are taking advantage of that. And so I think you're right that we need to look at what are what is being done at the micro level in food deserts and what are and, and why is this still an ongoing problem? To my knowledge, there's never been efforts to really regulate the sale of these foods at the local level. Now, in Mexico, there has been recent attempts in some um, cities uh, to prohibit the sale of junk foods to minors. And uh, that's been happening in a couple of cities. And that's the only case I know of globally where we've seen a local effort to do that. And this just happened in the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but in my to my knowledge in other countries, uh, I think you're absolutely right. At the micro level in poor communities where these food deserts are, there has been little attention paid to regulations. Yeah, it, it, it's a sort of part of a general neglect, I think, um, uh, from from government, which at least in the UK, I don't know how it is in the US, is really creating vastly different health outcomes. Oh yes. You get big differences in life expectancy between sort of a poor region in the UK and a well-to-do region that sits right next to it. Yes, yes. Um, Eduardo, let me begin to wrap up by asking you, how do our food habits and the changes to the food habits uh, unintentionally affect the situation? Do we, for instance, uh, unwittingly divert healthier food from poorer countries into exports or push them into producing the sort of health food stuff that, that we want, palm oil or um, things like that? away from producing the, the healthy food that their population needs? I don't think it's an intentional strategy to divert healthier foods away from emerging economies. I just think that there's been a neglect by our governments in trying to regulate what's happening in these other countries and how major multinationals are playing a role in that. It's an unfortunate byproduct. And I think that you know, our governments need to be much more cognizant of, you know, this byproduct of these multinationals going into these countries. And so I think that that, that needs to be addressed. But unfortunately, there's little political will to, to, to address this issue. Um, and that's where I think academics, activists, uh, you know, the media, um, all of us are, have a role in trying to raise awareness about this. 
Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so finally, let me ad- ask you a forward-looking question. What can we do about it? How can we inform us- ourselves better on the issue, other than to buy your book, of course? Um, how can we push it up the agenda? How can we pressure those with the power to make a difference? Oh, I think there's a lot can be done. Uh, first of all, this wonderful podcast is a great example of increasing awareness to the general public. I think that we need to support more academic researchers, more activists that are working on this topic and in emerging economies, raise awareness about their research and what their cultural and food needs are. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, with social media, I think that that's going to play a major role in increasing our public's awareness. The more we empower civil society and the more we empower politicians to have similar ideas and similar interests in in defending our nutritional needs and defending our most vulnerable communities, children and the Mm. poor, Mm. I think that we can make progress. I'm very optimistic that we will have within the next 20 to 30 years, a lot more awareness and pressures on government. And we're gradually seeing that. The low and middle income countries are now leading the world in the introduction of soda taxes. Um, you know, and they are really trying their best. Governments are mm. realizing this. And so I think I'm very optimistic that things can change very quickly. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, social media, podcasts, uh, you know, all media outlets will play a major role in this process. I like that as a note on which to end, uh, because A, it's optimistic, and and B, it emphasizes that we need to empower civil societies and activists in those countries, rather than impose this wisdom in a paternalistic way, which which works a lot lot less um, as as a strategy. Eduardo Gomez, thank you for a really great conversation. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Remember, if you get value from our work, you should support our work, and you can do so from as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of Mahatma Gandhi today. To the millions who have to go without two meals a day, God can only appear as bread. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andrei. The producer was Eliza Davis-Beard, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.